Acts chapter 10, verse 30. Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard, and thine alms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call hither Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodged in the house of one Simon of Tanner by the seaside, who when he cometh shall speak to thee. And then verse 33 said, Immediately I sent to thee, and thou hast done well that thou art come. Now therefore we are all here present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. And Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. There's a sermon in that, but I want to speak to you from this story and others in the book of Acts. Cornelius told Simon Peter, you did good that you came. And I want to speak to you tonight on the subject, divine appointments. You may be seated. Divine appointments. In the month of May, we've been talking about the spiritual side of our witness in April. We focused on our mission as fishing and our witness before the Lord to tell our testimony before, how, and now, often uh, to everyone we can as the Lord opens the door. And may we focus more on how God works with us, the Lord working with them. We are His witnesses, and so also is the Holy Ghost that the Lord has given us. I've taught a series several years ago uh, to help us understand that we are strategically positioned for ministry. God has placed us in this city, in this world, in a place where we can be salt and light for Him. Where we live and work and play is by the design of God, depending on where you play, by the design of God. He puts us there so that we can be His witnesses. But when God uses us for a divine appointment, something very special and specific happens in our lives. And as I, as I go through these stories, uh, there are many others that you could think of. I started to just try to refer to some in the Old Testament and in the Gospels, and there are many places where God used a man or woman to show up at a particular time at a specific place to do His work. And uh, I want to encourage you tonight that God wants to use you like that and that we would have a higher awareness, a greater awareness that God can and will use us and we want to be obedient to the Lord when He wants to use us for a divine appointment. Amen. A divine appointment is often an intersection where death meets life, where lost meets found, where despair meets hope, where sickness meets healing. A divine intersection is where rebellion meets rebuke sometimes. Sin may meet exposure. When the Lord schedules us for a divine appointment, it is one of the most exciting and awesome experiences in serving God and doing ministry. A divine appointment cannot be manufactured or manipulated. It is an act of God when we are used for His glory and someone's good. And to be aware of this 
And to follow the leading of the Spirit in our lives is very, very important. As I mentioned, the Bible is filled with divine appointments, but I want to limit my examples to the book of Acts, and there's still too many of them to really do them justice in a single Bible study on a Wednesday night. I'm not going to spend equal time on every story. Some I'll kind of go over because I think they're more familiar to most of us. And I'm really not trying to tell the entire story. Uh, you can always reference back in the book of Acts. I want to just show you kind of these stories through the lens of a divine appointment. The first is Acts chapter 3. Peter and John are going up to the temple to pray. It is the ninth hour of the day, about three in the afternoon. And they encounter a lame man there. We learn later that this guy is usually there. People know him. They know where he sits to beg for money. We would like to think that Peter and John had seen him before, but we don't really know that. He's begging for money. Peter tells him, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He takes him by the hand. His feet and ankle bone receive strength. He leaps up, walks, and enters the temple probably for the first time in his life. It is a divine appointment where Peter and John are intersected with a lame man who is begging for alms. This story turns into an encounter with the Jewish leaders and God begins to spread the gospel through this account of the lame man and Peter and John in Acts chapter 3. Fast forward to Acts chapter 8. Philip is down in the city of Samaria preaching Christ to them. They are watching and hearing. They're seeing miracles that he does. Demons are cast out. Miraculous healings are taking place. They've been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, and Peter and John come down and pray for them, and they receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. But then, in Acts chapter 8, uh, after this happens and all these miracles take place, look at verse 26. I want to talk about a divine appointment. The angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, who had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. I want you to just pause right here to think about this. This man, he's wealthy, he's a high-ranking official. I don't know how, but we learned that he has a scroll of the Bible. We learned it's Isaiah 53, what we would call Isaiah 53. He's reading the Bible. He is a God-fearer or maybe a proselyte to Judaism. He's come to Jerusalem to worship Jehovah. While he's there, all of these Christians are running around Jerusalem, but evidently he doesn't meet them. There's no encounter with a Christian in Jerusalem that converts him to Christianity. He's on his way home. This may be his last opportunity to encounter someone who would tell him about Jesus Christ. But for this to happen... Philip has to leave this revival in Samaria where many people are believing and being baptized, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. But God has a divine appointment for a sincere man that needs the gospel. Now, I want to also say this, that if this man would have been saved because he was sincere, because he worshiped God in the way he knew him, then God would have not gone to all the trouble to send Philip down to him. 
Just because you're sincere does not mean you are saved. It means you're hungry for God, and if you'll seek the Lord, you can find Him, and He will get a word to you of what to do to be saved. So Philip goes down to him. Verse 28, he's sitting in his chariot. He's reading Isaiah the prophet. The Spirit says to Philip, go near and join to the chariot. So Philip is pretty fast, evidently. He runs and catches up to the chariot. And he asks this man, do you know, do you understand what you're reading? He's reading about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And he said, how can I accept some man guide me? And Philip begins where the Ethiopian eunuch is. We say this a lot at Atlanta West, but you need to begin where people are. You need to figure out where they are and start there. Don't assume that they know something they don't. Don't assume that when they come to the altar to pray that they want to receive the Holy Ghost. You never know. So we are going to begin at their point of need and with their understanding. So Philip begins at that same scripture and preaches Christ to the Ethiopian eunuch. We know he preaches baptism because while they're going down, kind of bumping down the road, having a conversation, they come to a place where there is water down in the desert, enough for Philip and the eunuch to go down in the water, for Philip to baptize him. We know it would be in the name of Jesus because that's how they were baptized uh, back in Samaria when Philip was there. This man is on his way out of town. He's going back to Africa, back to Ethiopia. But God uses Philip for a divine appointment. Would it be incredible for God to use you just like that? And wouldn't it be even more amazing if after you came up out of the water baptizing a co-worker, the Spirit just transported you away and you were back maybe 35 miles away? How cool would that be? Don't you think that that person you just baptized would have a true spiritual experience if you disappeared right out of there? Acts chapter 9 is a story of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. He is breathing out threatenings and slaughter, wanting to kill Christians, throw them in, throwing them into prison. He gives his voice against the martyrdom of Stephen. But while he's on the road to Damascus with the letters in his pocket to persecute the church, the Lord arrests him on the road to Damascus, the blinding light. He is literally blinded for several days. And the Lord says, you know, Saul, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against these ox goes, the pricks. And he says, who are you, Lord? You know, he knows the Lord is Jehovah. And Jehovah says back to him from heaven, I am Jesus. That ought to make you believe in one God, Amen. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. He identifies himself with the church. Well, you would think that if God could speak to a man out of heaven, that he could say to him, Saul of Tarshish, go, get baptized in Jesus' name, repent of your sins, be baptized in Jesus' name, receive the Holy Ghost. But the Lord does not say that. He said, I want you to go in the city of Damascus and it will be told you what to do. So here he is, led by the hand. He goes, he is this powerful man who is now broken, repentant, helpless, and praying. But on the other side of the equation is Acts chapter 9, verse 10. 
And there was a certain disciple of Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And Ananias said, I am here, Lord. Have you ever told the Lord you would do anything or go anywhere? That's what Ananias kind of said. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go unto the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one Saul of Tarshish. For behold, he prayeth. And hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in, putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Now that sounds really amazing. But if you keep reading, Ananias says, Lord, I have heard all about this guy. How much evil he's done to the saints in Jerusalem. He's got authority from the chief priest. The word has already spread to us that he's coming here and he's going to do the very same thing. So, you know, Lord, I just want to tell you, I'm not signing up for that. He didn't really say that, but he told the Lord, do you know who you're talking about? This is a really bad dude. That's a paraphrase. The Lord says to Ananias, go your way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, and I will show him how much, how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way. He came into the house. He put his hands on him and he said, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. Now brother might have been through Judaism or that he had repented. He was not yet born again into the family of God, but he kind of speaks with respect to him. And he said, The Lord, even Jesus, that appeared to you in the way, came and have sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And it was like scales fell off Saul's eyes. And he received his sight. He arose and was baptized. And after that, he hung out with the disciples and began to boldly preach Jesus Christ. A divine appointment. What would have happened if Ananias would have said, Lord, you know about that guy, and I am sorry I'm not going to do that. I also think it's really significant that the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, whose name is changed to Paul and writes, you know, like 13 books in the New Testament, a brilliant scholar who was a Jew but also, you know, a Roman citizen who was so versatile in the way he could minister to just about anybody. He's the one who said, I am made all things to all men that I by all means might save some. This very versatile man was not reached by the Apostle Peter or the Apostle John or any one of the apostles. I think it is very significant that the Lord went to a man named Ananias who is called a certain disciple. He's not called a preacher, a prophet, a teacher. He is a certain disciple. He's a man or a woman. You know, he's a man, but he's a person just like you. Amen? So I think the Lord wants us to know that people like you, people like me, can reach people like Saul through a divine appointment. Acts chapter 10. I'll abbreviate this story, but you can read all of these. You know, Cornelius is also a very sincere man. He loves the Lord. He prays and gives much alms. He has a vision that he's supposed to send down to Joppa for a guy named Simon Peter who's lodging with a man named Simon a Tanner. So he has this amazing vision. But then Simon Peter, who's down there, he also has a vision. And the Lord is trying to get a message through to a Jewish man who is now a Christian, who is very Jewish, who doesn't really have much for Gentiles. 
They're kind of like down on Gentiles. You know, these Gentiles can't, can't be saved. And the Lord shows him a vision three times, a sheet that is let down, tied at the corners, and inside is all of these unclean animals, something, things that a Jew would never eat. And the Lord says, Arise, Peter, slay and eat. That's a great hunting scripture. In case you were looking for one. Three times. And while he's up on the rooftop about noon having this vision, Cornelius has sent representatives from him. And after the vision is over and God has gotten through as best he can to Simon Peter, these men are knocking on the door. You talk about a divine appointment. Acts 10, 17. Now, while Peter doubted in himself, these verses are on the screen, what this vision which he had seen should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate and called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, were lodged there. Now, let me just pause right here to say, there's nothing too hard for God. God can appear to a man named Cornelius and give you a place, a name, a name of a man, a place where he's staying. He can tell all of that to Cornelius, who is not yet spirit-filled, but is seeking for God. If you don't think God cares about lost people and that God can't find a way to get a word through, you need to read the Bible again, right? These are amazing stories. And he said, they're seeking. The Lord says, arise, get thee down and go with them. Nothing doubting, for I have sent them. Peter went down to the men which were sent unto him from Cornelius and said, behold, I am he whom you seek. What is the cause wherefore you've come? And they tell the story of Cornelius, who's a good man. Let me just read this because it's significant about Cornelius. Cornelius, a centurion, a just man, and one that feareth God, a, not a full proselyte, but he's looking toward Jehovah God and of good report among the nation of the Jews was warned from God by a holy angel to send for thee into his house and to hear words of these once again. If God can give you the name of a preacher, where he's staying, don't you think he could say, repent and be baptized unto you, you know, every one of you? That's not the way God works. This message of the gospel has been entrusted to us. It's our work. Amen? I know the Lord can point someone to the Bible. They can read it for themselves. But if you think that you're just going to pray enough and God's going to show it to everybody, you're missing the point of how this works. Amen? So... Verse 23, then called he them in, lodged them there. On the morrow he went his way with them. Certain brethren of Joppa accompanied them. When they get there, Cornelius is so excited. He's called all kind of people together. Now, he's a pretty powerful man. He's got his kinsmen. He's got his near friends. He's got his household there. We learned the proper pronunciation. I think it's ecos, right? He's got, he's got his whole sphere of influence. Household was not just mom and dad and three kids. It was a lot of people that were related to him or worked for him or were connected to him relationally. And Cornelius has got all of them there in his house. It's probably a rather large home because he's a well-to-do man. 
When he sees Peter, he falls down at his feet and tries to worship him. Peter's like, no, 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 we don't do that. I'm a man like you. We worship God, right? He knows that's dangerous when you start worshiping anyone but God. And he says, you know, I'm not supposed to be here. It's unlawful for a man that's a Jew to keep company with scumbag like, you know, he didn't say that. A man like you, a Gentile like you, even though Cornelius could probably run Simon Peter through his wallet and never know he was there. He's much higher social standing. He's a wealthy, powerful man. But, you know, these Jews, they, they're pretty proud of who they are. And he's having a rough time accepting Cornelius. So he said, but God told me not to call anything that he cleanses common or unclean. So I came to you. And now why did you send for me? And Cornelius rehearses the vision that he's praying and he sees a vision and he sends for him. And look at verse 33. This is my text. Immediately, therefore, I sent unto thee and you have done well that you were come. Now, therefore, are we all here present before God to hear all things that are commanded of thee of God. Think about this. We're waiting for what you're going to tell us. This is what I've been praying for. This is why I've been giving alms. I'm a devout man, but I'm not saved, and I need you to tell me what to do. Peter begins to preach to them, and while he is still preaching to them, Verse 44 says, while he spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. Now, I believe there's a reason this happened. Because Peter was so reluctant, after he sees that God has filled them with the Holy Ghost, now he knows that God has cleansed them with the Spirit, that he will not forbid water, that these should be baptized just like they were baptized. So now he feels that God has given him permission to baptize Cornelius and all of his household, these people are now in the church because of a divine appointment. It's a dramatic example of how God works. In Acts chapter 16, it's a divine appointment that most of us would never ask for. Paul and Silas are preaching. They're in Philippi. They cast the devil out of a girl who's got a spirit of divination. She's got a devil, but she tells the truth. She said, these are the men of the Most High God that show unto us the way of salvation. And she follows them around, just driving them crazy. Finally, Paul gets upset and he turns around and he casts the devil out of her. But she's got some men that manipulate her. They're her masters and they make money by her telling fortunes. So they set Paul up and he's arrested and they're thrown in jail. They beat them. They throw them in jail, which by the way, we'll later learn that is a Roman citizen, which Paul was freeborn. They could not beat a Roman man uncondemned. He could have sued them for this, right? He goes to jail. And the first thing they do, sitting there, it's now midnight. And they are beaten bloody for doing the right thing. And you would think that all this wrong has been done to them. This is a familiar story to many Pentecostals. But verse 25 of Acts chapter 16. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Now there's a lot of preaching material in verse 25. It's midnight, they're beaten, but they pray and sing praises. They don't let their circumstances get them down. And when they praise God, 
in their beaten, incarcerated condition. They are prisoners that listen to how they respond to their adversity. Don't you know there's a lot of people around you that watch whether you grumble and groan and complain or you praise God when everything goes wrong. You hit your hand with a hammer and whether you curse or say, praise the Lord. (laughs) It hit in the head and you just say, thank you, Jesus. I hope that knocks some sense into me. Now that's what my wife was saying. (laughs) There's an earthquake. All the doors are open. The jailer is going to kill himself because he thinks his job's on the line. Paul tells him, do thyself no harm. We're We're all here. We don't have to be here, but we're still here. They take this man out at midnight. They baptize him with all of his family. This is in Acts chapter 16, verse 33. And took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and was baptized. So he cleaned them up. They baptized him. They brought him into his house. He fed them, and he believed with God with all his house. I paraphrase that a little bit. But you would not think that that was a divine appointment. And I just want to say that sometimes it doesn't happen the way you think it ought to happen. Sometimes you're unjustly treated, but God's still setting you up for something good. Acts chapter 17. We're going to do a drive-by this. The Apostle Paul, he's been, you know, persecuted and he flees and he's dropped off at Athens. Athens, Greece. What a beautiful city, right? He's there in Athens and all he's doing is waiting on the next boat. He's just going to get out of there. So, you know, you could kind of imagine him hunkered down in his hotel room and he's waiting, kind of resting and recovering from all of the rigorous travel and persecution and preaching and everything he's gone through. But he does a little sightseeing in Athens and Acts 17, 15 says, they, they that conducted Paul brought him to Athens, received a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus for to come to him with all speed they departed. Now, while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. They said in Athens it was easier to find a God than it was a man, that there were gods over every gate. If you go to the city of Athens, there are altars all over everywhere, and Paul finds one altar that says, to the unknown God. He goes and he discusses this with him. All he is doing there is just sightseeing. He's just on vacation, not really, but he's just on a layover. But while he's there, as Brother DJ preached us when he first came, I want to remind you of it. He was wearing his purpose. When he saw the city wholly given to idolatry, something stirred up inside of him that said, I've got to do something about this. I don't take a vacation from God. I'm always his servant. And the rest of Acts 17 is an amazing chapter in the Bible, and I'll let you read all of that for yourself. But at the end of the chapter, there are three reactions. Some mock, some say, let us hear more, and some cleave to Paul. So there's a mixed bag in the reaction in the city of Athens. Acts chapter 18. Ready to go there? Verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens, came to Corinth, And found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and came unto them. So there's a lot in that verse about them being driven out of Rome. They come to the city of Corinth. 
And look at what the Bible says. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought or worked for by their occupation, excuse me, and wrought for by their occupation they were tent makers. Now Paul goes to Corinth. This is where God appears to him in a vision tonight. Says, be not afraid, hold not thy peace. I have much people in this city. You know, no man's going to set on thee to hurt thee. But here's Aquila and Priscilla. They're, they're just, they're lay people. Uh, how many have ever heard of the phrase tent makers talking about going to help someone start a church? Raise your hand if you've ever heard the phrase tent makers. See, people that have been around a little while. Not that you're old, but you've been around a while. Over here on my, <laughs> you're right. But they used to call them tent makers. Somebody's going to go start a church, and you're, you may not be a preacher, but you move to that city, you get a job, and you help them start a church. They were called tent makers. That's what Aquila and Priscilla were. They were just there to find work in Corinth. But guess what? It's not an accident. Because God brings them together at this intersection at a city where Paul finds companions, they work together, they preach together, and it is amazing divine appointment. The end of this chapter is also interesting. Verse 24. Now this is still about Aquila and Priscilla. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, Egypt, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus... This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in the spirit. He spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. So let's figure out who Apollos is. He's a Jew. He knows the Old Testament like the back of his hand. He is brilliant. He is an eloquent speaker. And he is very powerful in the scriptures. Someone has told him the message that John preached, that you're to be baptized under repentance, that you are to believe on the coming Messiah, and that's where his witness has stopped. That is all he knows. He's a very powerful theologian and speaker. And Aquila and Priscilla, blue-collar workers, run into Apollos, at church, synagogue. He's boldly, verse 26, began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. They did not know the Bible better than Apollos did, but they knew something he didn't know, that Jesus had come died, buried, risen again. The Holy Ghost was available. They didn't say, Apollos, you're going to hell. They didn't down him for not knowing enough. They embraced him where he was and they brought him along in a more truth and he became a powerful witness for the glory of God. A divine appointment. Acts chapter 19, Paul goes to Ephesus and he finds disciples of John. He just runs into them there. I'm going to breeze past this story, but he asks them how they're baptized, if they've received the Holy Ghost since they believed. They're all baptized in the name of Jesus, filled with the Holy Ghost. There are about 12 men 
in this story. And then the next story is a little less familiar. And I've related this story before to people who seem like have gotten bad advice. Acts chapter 21 Uh, Paul comes back to Jerusalem. He gives a report of the great revival that God has given him. And the elders, the Christian elders say to him, Now, Paul, we're really glad to have you here, but these Jewish believers and the Jews are going to hear that you've come back. And this is really a tense situation. I'm kind of paraphrasing. So here's what we want you to do. We've got four men that are about to take a Jewish vow, Christians who are going to take a Jewish vow. They should not have been taking a Jewish vow. It wasn't a sin, but it wasn't necessary. But they're they're taking a Jewish vow. What we want you to do, Paul, is take this vow with them. We want you to pay the charges for taking this vow. And you're going to spend some time in the temple, shave your head. You're going to do all of this. You're going to kind of go back under the ceremonial law. And you're going to uh, let everybody know that even though you're preaching to Gentiles, that as a Jew, you walk orderly. And uh, because we don't want to stir up any trouble here. So Paul says, yes, sir. I'm going to call this the general board of the, of the United Pentecostal Church of the early church, right? There's the people that I as a preacher submit to or the Georgia district board. So Paul is doing the right thing, taking the advice of his elders. Acts chapter 21, verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification, until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews, which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up the people and laid hands on them. That does not mean that they came and anointed him with oil and prayed for him. That means that they accosted him, that they tackled him, that they unofficially arrested him. They cried out, men of Israel, help! This is the man. We finally caught him. This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people, the Jews, and the law, and this place, the temple, and further brought Greeks into the temple and hath polluted this holy place, which was not true. And there's a vicious rumor going around that Paul had brought Trophimus into the temple. It was not true. Paul is there. They're about to rip him in half and the soldiers intervene. I'm kind of collapsing and summarizing this story to say that in the middle of all of this, Paul takes advice, he gets arrested, and from then until the end of the book of Acts and the end of his life, he is on and off again a prisoner. He's not really free a whole long time after this moment, and it's after he took advice. But God, I believe that as bad as this was, that it was a divine appointment, that God used this to set up the rest of Paul's life to fulfill what God had prophesied about him. Now let me just throw a little thought in here, not in my notes, 
But before this happens, there's a man named Agabus, a prophet. He is a mighty man of God. He has actually prophesied one time a famine that did happen. He comes to Paul. He takes Paul's belt, and the King James is called a girdle. He wraps it around himself, and he prophesies that the man that owns this belt will be arrested in Jerusalem. And everybody starts crying and praying and telling Paul, Oh, Paul, please don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. And Paul says, I am ready not only to be bound, but I am ready to, be, to die in Jerusalem. Now, here's a word of prophecy. This is a little tricky, and this is not my message. Here's a word of prophecy, and, and this is what God said. The man that owns this, this belt is going to be arrested in Jerusalem, bound in Jerusalem. And then everybody else adds to the prophecy and says, that means you must not go. We need to be careful when we're used of God or when someone is used of God that we don't add to what God said or try to interpret what God said because Paul knew that it was God's will for him to go to Jerusalem and he was arrested there. He was bound there. It sounds like it was anything but a divine appointment. But it was a divine appointment. Paul appears before Felix, Festus, Agrippa, and then Caesar. He is in the middle of maybe the worst legal trials of his life. He is before uh, Festus, Acts chapter 25, three verses here. Acts 25, 10. Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. In other words, the Jews were trying to do to Paul what they had done to Jesus, is leverage the Roman government to crucify or put him to death one way or another. But Paul is a Roman citizen. He has rights. And early on when they had bound Paul in this same whole unfolding story, he asked this captain of the guard a question, is it legal for you to bind a man who's a Roman citizen? He's like, oh man, it really kind of scared him. Like, you're a Roman citizen? I purchased my citizenship with great price. And Paul said, yeah, but not me. I was freeborn. City of Tarsus, right? And he said, oh my goodness, we've tied this man up. He can get a lawyer and sue us and we could be in a lot of trouble. So Paul says, these Jews are trying to do this to me. You know, he doesn't say all this like they did to Jesus. So he says to them, verse 11 of Acts 25, For if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof they accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them, speaking of the Jews, I appeal unto Caesar. That's a pretty awesome right as a Roman citizen, isn't it? Standing there, in Palestine, and you appeal to the most powerful ruler in the world, humanly, and they've got to honor that. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar thou shalt go. Later, Acts 26, 32, then said Agrippa unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. Now, you know, we like to think of someone who is a mastermind 
If you're writing a book or if you're going to, to write the script for a play or a movie, you can make it turn out any way you want. But in life, it's very difficult to script everything to make it turn out the way you want. But not for God. He can write a script with more plot turns and twists in the plot and in the story. And when you read everything that happens from Acts 21 to the end of the book of Acts, you see the miraculous and the genius of God at work putting Paul in, in difficult places, in dangerous places, all to bring about the glory of God so Paul would be a witness as he prophesied. He would be when the Lord spoke to Ananias and said, He is going to be my witness to Gentiles, to kings, and to my people. Before Saul was saved, the Lord already saw, S-A-W, what his future would be. And he ordered his steps in the Lord with one divine appointment after another. I want to just remind you that submission does pay, but not always in the short run, always in the long run. Amen? I have in my notes Acts 9, 15, where the Lord spoke to Ananias, but I uh, kind of just mentioned that, that he'll bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Last story in the book of Acts, because we're at the end of Acts. Acts 27, now Paul's headed to Rome. He's on a ship, and it's a great story. It's one of my favorite Stories in the Bible, Acts 27, it's a Eurocladin, it's a Mediterranean Sea hurricane. And everybody's going to die, but an angel appears to Paul and tells him, I've given you everyone who sails with you, 276 people. The ship is dashed on the rocks. The back of the ship is broken up. They want to kill everyone so the prisoners don't escape. But Paul finds mercy and they let everybody go. And they start swimming for land. Some on boards and broken pieces of the ship. Some that can swim well are swimming to shore. And they wind up on a little island called Melita. Hovering around a fire. And there's a venomous viper that's in the wood. And as the fire heats it up, the snake comes out of the fire and bites Paul on the hand. And everybody looking around says, this must be a really bad man. That he's escaped the sea, but God said he's so bad, we're going to make him die anywhere. Die anyway. And Paul shakes the snake off in the fire, which is a good uh, example of what Jesus spoke about. They shall take up serpents, they shall not harm them. As I said recently, there is no indication that you should tempt the Lord your God by handling venomous snakes and thinking they won't bite you. That would make you a fool. And you would be violating the scripture when they told Jesus to jump off the pinnacle of the temple, you know, but don't die and they'll believe you're the Lord. And he said, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. They get on this island of Melita. The people there, King James says barbarous, but barbarous, but just people of the island, not sophisticated, not Jews. They show kindness, and you know, here they are on this little island. And this is a very interesting divine appointment. 
Because it almost doesn't make sense. This doesn't even seem like it would be on God's journey for Paul. But while they're there, Acts 28.7 says, In the same quarters were possessions of the chief men of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and lodged us three days courteously. Came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and a bloody flux. And I was going to use a different translation, but all the other translations say dysentery, so it's just as bad. <laughs> to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. When this was done, there were many other desires. Here is this little island. We're on a shipwreck. They swim to shore. Here's these people that may have not heard the gospel ever in their lifetime, but there's this divine appointment. And God uses Paul to pray for like the chief of the village and he's healed and many other people are healed and they take care of them and after three months, Paul sails on to Rome. Now let me give a few little summary statements to this message on divine appointments. In Acts 3, Peter and John are doing something very routine going up to pray when God gives him a divine appointment. For Philip in Acts chapter 8, he has to obey the voice of God, leave a revival to go to a desert, but he has to be obedient to the voice of God. In Acts chapter 9, it's the interesting story of Ananias, who's afraid of Saul but obeys the Lord, and God uses a common man to see the conversion of the powerful apostle Paul. In Acts 10, the story of Cornelius there's a lot of stories that have this, these two elements, but I'm amazed how God works on both end of the, ends of the line. If God is speaking to you about a person, if God is speaking to you, you can rest assured that God is speaking to the other person as well. So while God is talking to Cornelius, God is talking to the apostle Peter. That's just the way God works. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas have to go to jail to have a divine appointment. In Acts 17, Paul has to brush aside, you know, everything he saw in Athens, the idolatry, and not say, boy, this is a wicked city. These people don't want God. To say, wow, what a wicked city. Look at all these idols. These people are so misguided. They need the gospel. In Acts chapter 18, it is Aquila and Priscilla who are they're just run out of Rome, who land in Corinth, circumstances out of their control, but God is working at all things after the counsel of his own will. In Acts 18, it is Aquila and Priscilla who are wearing their purpose and lead Apollos into all the truth. It is Acts chapter 19 when Paul is traveling through Ephesus, meets the disciples of John. Acts 21, Paul submits to authority, keeps a good attitude, and many divine appointments happen after that toward taking the gospel all the way to Rome. In Acts 27 and 28, Paul is in a really bad hurricane. They're afraid. I mean, the Lord tells them, be, you know, do, be not afraid. He has to tell them this. There's 14 days they've not seen the sun or the moon or the stars. The ship is coming apart. They've thrown everything overboard that they can to lighten the ship. This is not just Apostle Paul, you know, just sitting around saying, well, God's got this, you know, no big deal. 
He is a man with 275 other men who is afraid for his life until the Lord speaks to him. It's an amazing story. And then this last divine appointment, how God uses the hurricane and swimming to shore and this little island of Melita for God to use Paul to witness to people who may have never heard another way. Divine appointments. Would you please stand? Worship team is coming. On Monday, I feel like the Lord used me a little bit for a divine appointment to encourage a saint of God. I asked my wife for permission to tell this story, but it's necessary for me to make it very, very generic. Because it's not a really positive story and it doesn't have a good ending. But a few years ago, maybe five years ago, my wife went to some event where some ladies were. She had never been to this little restaurant before. Is on the other side of town. She's never been there again. While she's sitting in the parking lot getting ready to leave, she looks out the vehicle and she sees a person that she recognizes who is doing something that is out of character for them or should be and something that is inappropriate and unbecoming a Christian. She tells me, this person does not attend our church, has never been a part of our church, but we know this person I confronted them about what my wife saw and they lied to me repeatedly and their life has become a shipwreck. And there's a very sad ending when I think back how God gave this person a divine appointment that someone would catch them doing something that was, you know, ended in an evil direction to show mercy to them that they could be saved. Uh, Without telling a story, but I I know this. many of you could say you have, but how many of you have ever experienced, don't raise your hand yet, a divine appointment, either you were the recipient or God used you as that person? Would you just lift up your hand? You know what I'm talking about tonight. You've been there? Just hold it up a little bit. You've been part of a divine appointment. Amen. You know, I'd like for you to just ask the Lord to use you you know it's not so you can go back and tell a story and say wow wasn't that cool that God used me that way but what would have happened in the stories I've just told Simon Peter if Ananias and Aquila and Priscilla many number of these 11 stories if they would have just said nah I don't think so we're not God was guiding them and they were listening and God was working on the other side of things. I want to encourage you to not, my notes say this phrase, don't chicken out. Don't be afraid and, you know, not take that step of faith that God calls you to do. Today, toward the end of my study day, I just thought of this. It's not in my notes. I I taught, I preached a message or taught months ago about being prompted to pray. I was working on my message this evening, this afternoon rather, and, and, a, and a friend of mine, a minister, his, his name just came to my mind. It wasn't ominous. I didn't fear he was in erect. I don't know what. But I just, I just pushed myself back from my desk and I prayed for him. And then I texted him and let him know that he was on my mind and I just paused to pray. I don't know. You know, we exchanged a few text messages and Probably prayer was needed, but it wasn't like, you know, he almost had a car accident, but 
he appreciated the prayer and kind of in a little rough spot. But anyway, I would rather be wrong 20 times and just pray for somebody, somebody because their name came to my mind or a hundred times or a thousand times because there's no harm with praying for someone. There's no harm with witnessing with someone. Why not step out on faith and let's, let's tune our ear to the voice of God. Let's tune our ear to the voice of God. Remember the Lord speaking to Samuel. He had to speak really the fourth time, and the Bible said that Samuel did not know the voice of the Lord. He had never heard that voice before. So he kept thinking it was the voice of Eli, the priest. But finally, you know, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. I want God to use me to be part of a divine appointment. Would you, if you have time, would you gather at the altar? Let's spend just a few moments in prayer and ask the Lord to help us be used of Him to be what He called us to be. Amen. Thank you, Jesus.